It's Gay Pride Month, and I wanted to do something to support women in history. So I wanted to tell you about a podcast that is doing just this. So for too long, history lessons have glossed over the essential contributions women have made to history. I mean, that's the truth. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. Encyclopedia Womanica aims to change the narrative by introducing the trials and triumphs of a diverse group of extraordinary women. And in June, they're celebrating Pride. Tune in every weekday to hear the true stories of fearless and unapologetic LGBTQIA plus women from history. You may not know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe and follow Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to It's Not a Crisis. I am your host, Doran Wallach. I'm an entrepreneur, a mother of two, a wife, and a 40-something, trying to figure out what is happening in this decade. Why is no one talking about it? I created this podcast to help women in their late 30s and 40s to figure out what is going on in our mind, body, soul, and life. We may laugh, we may cry, we may get frustrated, but most importantly, my goal is to make this next chapter of life positive. I'm also full of my own questions, and I'm here to go on this journey with you, so let's do it together. Hi, and welcome to It's Not a Crisis. As usual, I am so grateful that you're listening to me blab away and interview these amazing people. Uh, And I, I really, truly am grateful. So thank you for coming back and listening to another episode. Today, we are talking about female infidelity. I have had countless requests for a show on this, so clearly there's an interest to some of you. And this is an episode that we should all listen to because you never know in life when you're faced with a situation on either side. So I found a little fun fact because someone, you know, along my way, someone mentioned that animals aren't monogamous. And so, of course, I had to do the research and found out that only three to five percent of the 5000 species of mammals bond for life, including otters, beavers and wolves. When only primate species are considered, the rate is slightly higher, 6% of the 300 primate species in the world, including gibbons are considered monogamists. (laughs) Just, you know, just a little info for you there. Just thought I'd I'd throw in a fun fact. So growing up, many of us, if we heard about an affair, it was typically the man. They were a pig, and that was that. However, with our generation of women being more independent and having more flexibility in the workplace and more freedom, it's become more and more common that you hear about women having affairs. Now, I want to preface this entire podcast with the fact that I am not here to encourage affairs. I am not advocating for affairs. I simply want to learn more about women's reasons compared to men and why they happen, how to repair your relationship if an affair took place on both sides, and how we can have a more open dialogue about this. Some experts would say that affairs are inevitable on one side of the relationship in a long-term marriage if you look at the statistics, but most agree that in the long run, it doesn't repair any underlying issues. So we'll get a little bit into that. You often hear rumors that in other countries, infidelity is not as big of a deal, that we live in a very religious society with one belief. What I'm about to read is not of my opinion, but interesting to hear from women in other countries. I particularly wanted to read about French women because you always hear people saying, oh, the French, you know, they... 
they always have somebody on the side and they think our country is nuts by how involved we get with, you know, our president and whatever else is happening politically and extramarital affairs. So I read two articles. I thought these were interesting. So one article by Helena Frith Powell, she was living in France and she kind of explored this more. And from one of her French friends, they said, the family is the main issue. The reason we accept the natural human urge to wander is that the family is more important than the individual. And when I talk about family, I mean the extended family. We are talking about 50 or 60 people. So if you break up the couple, you affect all those people. It's just not worth it. So I think that was in reference to making a big deal about the affair. But interesting, you know, I think many people would say, well, just don't have it to begin with. She also went on to say, as you would expect from an egalitarian society, women are not condemned for philandering either. We talk about our affairs entre nous, my friend Delphine says. And of course, we are loyal to our girlfriends and remain silent. The silence is part of the French code of extramarital conduct, which includes a heavy dose of discretion. I get the impression that you would be more vilified for behaving in an indiscreet manner than a faithless one. And this, again, goes back to the enormous respect they have for the institution of marriage and family. I just thought that was so interesting. I'm always interested in the way other cultures deal with certain things in society and uh, against America. Not that I love my country, but I, you know, this is where I grew up. It's the only norm that I know. So I always find it really fascinating. There was another article by Christina Perez in Vogue, and she said when speaking to French women, they said, that is a silly cliche you Americans believe, meaning that they think infidelity is a normal thing. I don't mind if my president has sex with other women. That is not my problem, of course. I do hope my man doesn't do that to me. Instead, the French believe in working to keep each other instead so that neither person wants to have an affair in the first place. It's work. He still needs to conquer me every day, and I need to make him want me every day. American women think that they need a man to fulfill them. We, French women, fulfill ourselves, and then we find a man to come along and be part of our journey. So obviously this is a gross generalization to one country of humans, but <laughs> interesting to listen to. And you know, I, I do think there's a part of uh, every woman that should find themselves before they find a man. I think it's really important to be confident in who you are before you embark in a long-term relationship. Anyway... As I get older, more into my 40s, I don't look at things as black and white as I did when I was younger. I'm not sure about you. I think it's important to educate ourselves and understand all of this a little bit more. Dr. Megan Fleming is a nationally recognized certified sex and relationship expert. She has over 20 years of experience working with individuals and couples to discover what's getting in their way and teaches them the skills and strategies to get the sex and relationships they want. Dr. Fleming is also a clinical instructor at the Weill Cornell Medical College. She is known for her practical advice and easy-to-follow guidance. A media go-to expert for all aspects of sex and relationships, she's been featured on Anderson Cooper, Oprah Winfrey Network, MSNBC, Cosmopolitan, Men's Health, Maxim, and the New York Times, among others. Dr. Megan Fleming is the resident sex expert on the Girl Boner podcast, answering hashtag Ask Dr. Megan questions each week. 
Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here today. Oh, Jordan, I'm so excited to be here, have this conversation with you. Listen, this is a touchy subject. I think it's a subject that we don't talk about often. I feel like in our culture, it's something that's just you know, pushed aside. And I think I think we do have to talk about it more because I think there needs to be education and information on the topic. Uh, I think it's just important for, for everybody to listen to this episode. Absolutely. My first question is, compared to maybe when our generation, I don't know what, what generation you're part of, but Gen X, when we were younger, you know, you heard stories of men cheating, but we know that infidelity has been happening since the beginning of time. But more and more, we hear about women having affairs. Can you explain a little bit about, you know, why that is, how, how this has evolved? Well, I think it has a lot to do in many ways with opportunity that historically, right, women, in a sense, were almost the possession or belonging of a partner. And that over time, especially even women initially would get into like education or nursing, but that the most important thing, I think one of the reasons is, is the financial independence, right? That women have an ability to leave that they didn't have before. And I think there was also a lot of more shame and stigma historically, or even like excommunication from the church, so to speak. So I think that things like no-fault divorce and recognizing that you're not going to lose everything is one of the reasons, and honestly, having more opportunity. Women now are traveling for work or, you know, meeting lots of parents at like, you know, on the soccer field. And you sort of never know where those windows of opportunity might come from. But that they clearly have more opportunity than we've ever had before. Well, you know what's interesting also? I noticed that these younger, the younger generation now are very, very, very different in the way that they approach relationships than we even are. They're a lot more aware of different types of sexuality. They don't seem to want to be locked down early. There's, there's you know, this female independence that's wonderful that I'm so happy to see. I'd be interested in learning how Gen Z, millennial generations approach infidelity may not even, you know, who knows? It may not even be as prevalent given that they're they're so open to dialogue, which I, I just think is so fascinating. They're also less likely to get married. Yes, or, less likely to get married. Well, right. Get married well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I think that they don't even believe a lot, not everybody, but I think they don't even really believe in marriage, which is, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens with all of that. So so there are three main reasons for affairs. Um, I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, in your experience as a therapist, what are the main reasons that you've seen affairs take place? Well, I think one of the biggest ones is when you sort of become roommates and there's really a loss of connection. There might even be outright hostility, depending on the nature of the relationship, but that you no longer feel that sense of connection with your partner, I think is a, a big number one, not feeling seen, not feeling considered, not feeling appreciated. All those feelings come along with that. Then there's, of course, the role of just wanting sexual variety and novelty and maybe kinds of sexual experiences that you might even just believe your partner's not interested in, and you may never even had that conversation. And then I think the other is somewhat situational and sort of circumstances like maybe you're drinking and it's a traveling for work situation or on a vacation. And because of the nature of that unique opportunity where an affair or an infidelity might happen. Can you speak a little bit about the you know lost parts of self? What exactly does that mean? Sure. Well, I think that actually as a different piece, which is sometimes it's a disconnection from partner and feeling, again, not appreciated, not seen, not considered. And sometimes it's, say, maybe in the role of mother, like I am, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, and I've 
got no time for myself and I feel like I've lost my own sense of self and identity. And so some women would say, it's not even that I'm unhappy in my marriage. It's more that I don't know who I am. Like they've lost parts of themselves and haven't expressed them. And that sometimes then when that opportunity where again, it's the attention, it's the feeling singled out that you're sort of desirable, that there's reconnection of like, oh, I forgot I even had these feelings or the sense of aliveness inside of me. And so sometimes, you know, relationships outside of the marriage are about exploring and reconnecting with parts of yourself. A lot of women just feel like they're needed all the time and it's all about everybody else and not about them. There's a reason they tell you to put the oxygen mask on yourself first. Right. Um, and the re reality is I think women often caretakers that we are, we're at the bottom of a list that never gets done. And so, you know, I even learned this for myself, like I went around when I was 40, I was like, if I didn't take care of me and fill up my own tank and I'm running on empty, first of all, you're going to be more reactive and people are going to get the worst parts of you, not the best parts of you. And it's really just a setup for yourself. And so I think it's important that we prioritize resourcing ourselves and also sex therapist that I am, and that we prioritize pleasure in our lives and all the different ways that that can look. Yeah, I mean, so, and I think that's so hard. I think it's very, it's it's easier said than done to so many women, myself included, because we have also this amount of guilt. I think, I think in particular mothers uh, where we feel like we're putting ourselves last is feeling like that's part of the job and it's not. And, and I, for one, it's something that I'm working on. I think it's really important and it's empowering when you start doing it, but it takes work. And I think there are just so many women who really don't believe in putting themselves first. That's the messaging. And, and I don't know if it's because I was raised Catholic or not, and maybe as you're saying, it's just more globally true. But I sort of kind of was almost raised with this idea that self-care is selfish, <laughs> that you put yourself first versus, say, your children and everyone else. And again, in my mind, it's self-care is non-negotiable because, again, if you don't take care of yourself, everybody's going to pay. And when you do take care of yourself, because we're generous and we, we actually have more to give. You had mentioned to me prior to the recording that there are three major elements of an affair organized around a secret. If you could go a little bit into that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to realize that the nature of it is that it's a secret. I mean, there's a difference between privacy and secrecy, but in the context of an affair, it is consciously a secret because you're holding it from your partner and that there's an, a degree of an emotional involvement. So even if it's like a stare pro might say like a hit and run, you know, it's kind of maybe a one night stand. There's still an element of an emotional involvement. And the third element is really that's kind of chemistry or alchemy. And as I talked about earlier, it's that quality of feeling seen and desired. It's a look in the eye that for many, they haven't felt or seen or experienced in years. Right. So so that that can be addictive, I would imagine. Well, even just sort of that attention, like that, you know, chemistry and the early phases of relationship, romantic love, we, we know is a drug, right? It's dopamine, it's oxytocin, it's basically all the feel-good neurotransmitters. And so what's interesting, though, is the romantic phase is meant to end, and most affairs don't last more than 24 months. So when I'm working with couples, I often say, you know, an affair partner is like an apple and an orange, like to your partner, like they're both fruit, but how you feel under the drug of dopamine is very different than what it's like to be with a partner you've been in 24 seven raising kids with. And so, oh yeah, you really have to recognize. And I think importantly, when we're emotionally hijacked, whether that's because it's like the drug cocktail or because like, say the affair has been discovered and we're in crisis, 
whenever our nervous system is hijacked, we call it the amygdala hijack like that, that is not the place to be making decisions from. At the end of the day, they poop, they make messes. <laughs> they, they they do all the things that your husband probably does. You, right? <laughs> disappoint. The nature of relationship we sort of say is rupture and repair. It's not that, you know, it doesn't happen. It's just that you get better at it, right? Like it happens less frequently, less intensely, and quicker time back to connection. But everybody is, it's just the nature of relationship. It's funny. I um, used to volunteer with the elderly back in college, and I had this one woman who I loved. I just, she had the most amazing spirit. She was really out there in a way that it was just, she used to tell me stories. And she t openly told me that she's had um, a lover her entire life, and she sees him once a year. And they have this like wonderful weekend together. And she's like, I love my husband very much. I've had a beautiful, beautiful marriage with him. He passed away at the time. She's like, I had a beautiful marriage with him, but I had this other lover that fulfilled something else in me. And, you know, I never allowed it to be more than once. No, well, maybe it wasn't once a year, maybe not once a month, probably once. I don't know. I don't really remember. But she said, you know, I never allowed it to get to the point where I looked at him like a husband or anything else. It was just about the sex and the romance. I thought that was really funny. Um, I think that there was a lot more of that going on than than our ancestors talked about. Absolutely. And to your point, even though I said, you know, the majority of affairs are less than two years, the reality is some women have been having them for over decades. And actually, right. same truth is for men. But And that, you know, that idea of a double life, for some people, that's just, in their mind, sort of works best for them. Because I've heard women say that, again, they're very happy with their partner, their marriage, but there's just a special, unique, you know, whether it's they have the same ideas of like working out and fitness and like that's a special thing that connects them to, to their <laughs> partner. Um, but that, yeah, it, it's, you know, some women are really in a sense of conflict of not wanting to lose either. What do you see more commonly in the reasons why men have affairs? Do you see it different than than women? I mean, I think, again, just like the gender gap in terms of that historically men right. more frequently had affairs than women, I think the reasons are also becoming more similar. But that historically, again, men, I think it was it was that idea of sort of novelty and variety. And for women, it was more sort of dissatisfaction with the relationship. But again, I women are more, it's almost like culturally, there's more permission, right, for women and sex positivity, for women to own their sexuality without, you know, historically being seen as, quote unquote, the slut or like yeah. there's been so much historical shaming, I think, about women's sexuality. And so as women are feeling more empowered to own their own pleasure, I think they too are having sex for many of the same reasons that men historically have. Right. You, we had talked a little bit about micro cheating. Can you explain what that is? I think micro cheating is that sense of like, it's like the whispers of infidelity. Like you haven't had the transgression, you haven't sort of crossed a physical line, but it's that sense of flirting or maybe you're out drinking with a coworker and you grab their hand, or it's even like not being honest that you're going to go have drinks with a particular coworker or coworkers, that sense of like lying by omission. It's, it's those small behaviors that we sort of refer to as micro cheating. I mean, one could argue that flirtation is not a bad thing. It's an innocent way to feel still like a, a woman. And to even channel that in a positive way. Right? Some people right. flirt 
because that helps them sort of activate. I, call it, I sort of alive. refer to like your sexy pilot light, right? Like right. it's our responsibility to keep it on. And if you can channel that to your marriage and your relationship, that, that's fantastic. But obviously that's not how it works for everyone. I have a friend who's who's like such an amazing flirt and it's part of her, <laughs> it's just part of her spirit. And her husband is like well aware of it. He thinks it's funny, but she can literally make any man fall in love with her in like two seconds. <laughs> it's just the, the, a little bad of her eyes. You know, she's she acts it out. It's it's very funny. It's entertaining to be out with her. And it never goes beyond that. Her husband actually likes it. You know, he he laughs at it. So, you know, that works for some people. Absolutely. And that's the thing is that because I hear this a lot. I mean, some couples are openly flirtatious in front of their partners and but it's part of their shared understanding. Again, there's not that sense of secrecy or right. let me hide this or not let you know. Right. So and in, in speaking about that, there are today a lot more ways of of exploring this side of you as a couple and together that I think our generation is kind of talking about it. I think that actually spoke to somebody recently who started doing this later in life. But can you talk about the different options that couples can explore as opposed to infidelity that might might satisfy those different cravings? Sure. And, and let me just say around that, that the advantage of these other like consensual um, arrangements or in terms of definitions of relationships, they allow for integrity, right? That Mm -hmm. when you're cheating on someone, there's a part of you that knows you're doing harm. You may not be thinking about that other person in the moment, but like Doug Brown Harvey, he's on the West Coast, talks a lot about the role of sexual health and the six principles. And two of those, one is honesty and the other is non-exploitation. And so the reality is, is when you're having an affair, you basically are sort of exploiting the trust of your partner. So I think to be in integrity and know that you both have an open dialogue, which is, I think, often constantly being considered and and negotiated, but the role of like consensual non-monogamy, polyamory, open relationships. I mean, there are many, many different ways of exploring what kind of relationship structure works for you. And that I think for most couples, the discussion about fidelity and what it means, you know, again, kissing, talking to an ex on Facebook, like and even determining what would be considered okay or not okay is conversations couples don't have until there's the crisis. Right. And by the way, for you, the listener, um, I am doing a podcast on open relationships because... I think that topic is really interesting and something that definitely I don't hear about much among my social circles, but I think it's being talked about a lot more these days. Absolutely. And I think that, again, it's great that people are having those conversations, but I can also say in general, having worked 20 years with couples, it's not uncommon. They're like, oh, I would love that for me. Right. Not (laughs) the double standard, but not for you. So again, it is a unique relationship where there isn't that sense of jealousy. And it's just a sense of like, wow, I really love that, you know, this other person turns you on. Like, so again, but I think more commonly- It doesn't work one way. It doesn't work one way. And I think a lot of people have that fantasy for sure. So. I had a listener who wrote me, and um, I, I think it was very brave, and she said that she's had multiple affairs. She has a wonderful marriage, loves her husband very, very much, but she doesn't feel guilt over it and uh, was feeling a little guilty about not feeling guilt. What is going on in a case like this? 
Well, again, I think it's what I referred to earlier, which is sometimes people feel like they don't have an opportunity or option to explore parts of themselves in their relationship. Say like you had an interest in kink and you know that that's definitely not something your partner's interested in. There's a part of you that might be saying, wow, well, I don't want to live the rest of my life not exploring this part of myself. So there's almost the sense of entitlement of like what the affair is doing for me. And I don't feel bad or guilty about that. That being said, I would hope that that person is feeling guilty and allowing themselves, because otherwise, again, it may be grandiosity or narcissism, to be mindfully aware of what this is doing to my partner. So it's not just what it means for me, but it's what it does to them. And so I think in often in affair recovery, again, it's the remorse, it's taking the responsibility, it's that your partner sees the pain in your eyes. That is a big piece of the recovery. So it's not necessarily that I feel bad that it happened because what if it maybe helped me to connect within myself, but that definitely taking responsibility for the impact of your choices, that your partner wasn't part of that decision-making. You, you took their agency out of their own hand. And so in my mind, if you're not feeling guilty about that, that's a, a different kind of conversation. You know, I can, can think it leads to generally more grandiosity or narcissism. Well, how would you work through that? with a client that came in and said that to you? What are your steps in working with somebody that would be going through that? Well, I guess part of my question is, who's the client, right? Is my client, I'm working with this woman individually, or am I working with a couple where sort of the, the affairs have been discovered? So first of all, it's like, who's my client? The other is, is there an active affair going on? Or is this something based in the past? Because I think those are, are really important clarifying circumstances and context to think about what the treatment would look like. Okay. Let's just say, you know, this this is a person coming to you individually. They're still in the relationship. The spouse doesn't know. And they come to you and say what I just said. How do you work with that person? Well, again, I think part of it is it's interesting that they're coming in the first place, right? Like we sort of say, if somebody's not personally distressed, then it's not a problem. Right. So, okay, so maybe they do feel a little guilt and they don't realize <laughs> what guilt is. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that that's the thing. Like if somebody wouldn't probably be in treatment or in therapy if they weren't curious or they weren't feeling some distress. And sometimes even the distress might just be, it's exhausting trying to live this double life. And I'm aware that I'm playing with fire and I don't want to blow up my marriage or hurt my children, but I'm not ready, willing, or able because even that sense of withdrawal, right? When we have all that nice dopamine on board, that they're not feeling able to leave or don't even want to end this other relationship. So that's a scenario of really just in my mind, sort of holding space for that person to process of discovery, like what really matters, what's important to them. And, but be mindfully aware that you are playing with fire, that even if it's not your intention, it is possible today, especially when people have so much access to like phone records and things like that, that your partner might find out and that you would be delusional to think that you're not risking your marriage if that's something you don't want to be doing. I would imagine, though, as a therapist, you you approach this in a non-judgmental way as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Right. right. Because my biggest feeling, and this is true globally, is that each individual is their own expert. Right. And going back to like, we live in a world today that I think in some ways for the first time ever, like we can live and create the life we want, however that looks, right? Without shame, guilt, like being fully in integrity, like a non- like consensual non-monogamy, like excluding that it's not illegal, right? Or violating someone else's rights. There's no reason we can't own and claim and have the relationships and the life that we want. 
I uh, read an article where you were quoted uh, talking about that if somebody had an affair, that telling the person isn't always the best way to go. Can you expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. And I know it's mixed feelings about this and sort of amongst couples therapists, but I also know I'm not alone in my perspective. Right. And and just to preface this with like this, just because this is one person's belief doesn't mean that necessarily because I, I know a lot of women who say like, oh, if my husband is having an affair, I would want to know. And the fact that they, and then I've had many friends say, I, you know what, out of sight, out of mind, like, I don't want to know about it. I don't want to ruin my life. I'm happy with the way my life is. So so sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to mention that. Sure. And I want to say that it, in my saying, not bringing it up, it's, it's first globally, it's never saying that it's okay or acceptable behavior, right? Because it's sort of the violation of trust. The betrayal is like, it's, it's more than the sex. Really, the betrayal is at the root of what is so painful about affairs. But that in my mind, because it is so painful, if your goal and intention is to work on your marriage, or we sort of say it's like, in my mind, it's like your marriage 2.0, like the first version wasn't working. So when, if you choose to stay together, it's to create like a new vision and what is our sort of new improved 2.0 version look like. So if you want to create that, and this is an important piece, is the affair over, right? Because again, you can't be actively working on your marriage and be actively in an affair if the goal is to strengthen your marriage. But that if your goal is to strengthen your marriage and this affair is over, you're telling them something they don't know is blowing it up for them. Like, it's almost like you don't want to feel the guilt because you want the honesty and transparency, but you're kind of like saying, I don't want to carry it. So let me put it in your lap. And to me, having worked with so many couples, once this has been brought forth, like now you've completely rocked this person's world, right? Like it shatters their sense of reality. They're trusting you. They're trusting themselves because like everything they thought was true isn't true. And so in my mind, giving that information for something that had happened a long time ago and is not in any way, you're not feeling at risk to be in an affair or cheating with someone else. It's not going to be helpful for your partner to now have to, for them now, it's now in their lap to have to hold the burden of it. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. I think that obviously this is an individual choice, but I think that there's a lot to say about that. And I really think it's because the person wants to unload the guilt and have the honesty. But again, at what cost to your partner? Right. I, th- I, you know, I think that choice needs to be really thought out, I would imagine, because I think that, you know, and listen, everybody knows their individual partner. I, I, I know a lot of couples who've had this conversation and it's something that is discussed over a long term marriage, uh, whether you'd want to know or not or, you know, obviously you just don't do it. But I think it could relate to many other parts of a marriage as far as being open and honest. And so I think there are certain things. Some of I have, I have friends who are like, I have no idea how many partners my husband's been with. I'm like, how could you not have that conversation? I know everything about my husband's life, I think. I mean, maybe. Well, I don't but, know everything. But that goes back to what I said earlier. Like, there's a difference between secrecy and privacy, right? And that right. we are entitled to our privacy. And right. maybe some of that history isn't necessary. And again, even this sort of cultural, you know, affairs have different meaning in different parts of the world. And so again, going back to like France, like, they think it's crazy that we as Americans would want to know every detail. And I think that's the piece of it. It's like people think they want to know everything, but it's like you really kind of want to know, you know, was the sex she had with her or him better than it was with me? Like, I think it's trying to get to the root of some really important questions, just but painful. not knowing and it, the that's details. That's just painful. I mean, who wants to hear that, right? I, mean, that's, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, yeah, yeah, right. It's just wanting to know more, but you know, without having to wonder about it all the time. Or to visualize it. I right, mean, to visualize it. Exactly. Like, that can really lead to PTSD, if you ask me, in some cases. I think so. 
Yeah, absolutely. Is there any positive to having an affair in the long term in a relationship? I mean, absolutely for some couples, because it is sort of that wake up call. We sort of have an expression like the crisis can also be the opportunity because some people have really been living unhappy, disconnected, and often avoiding difficult or hard conversations. Maybe they're conflict avoidant, or there may be many other reasons. But an affair is sort of that eye opener, and it is that opportunity to really have hard and difficult conversations. And there's often such a level of connection intimacy that, I mean, couples are talking in ways that they haven't often talked in years. And that is really what facilitates ultimately the healing and ability to create like a 2.0 version. I want to talk a little bit about working through after having a, an affair, if if it is found out. I think when, with our parents' generation, you hear a lot that they, well, I think it goes back to the generation before them. It was a kind of out of sight, out of mind. You heard about a lot of women who knew their husbands had somebody on the side and they just kept their mouth shut for obvious reasons that we spoke about before. I think when the 80s happened, I think it, you know, there was a little more discussion, a little more that generation of women, in my opinion, that said, you're out of here, I'm kicking you out, you had an affair, it's over. And they weren't really, from my experience now in doing this podcast over a year and studying generations, this wasn't a very communicative generation. It was a lot of, as we talked about in another episode, a lot of emotionally immature people who were just kind of raised to not express their feelings. So today, I have noticed there are more couples who go through this and they are trying to work it out as much as they possibly can. So I'm just curious if you have anything to add to the differences between then and now and what you're noticing in couples when they come to you trying to work through this and, and can it be done? Well, first, let me just start by saying absolutely it can be done. And that in my experience, some people really do come out having a much stronger, happy, healthier uh, relationship. That being said, what I see is some of the difference to your points, like almost everybody, if you ask, say, 100 or 1000 people, what would you do if your partner cheated on you? I think 99.9% .9 would say I would leave them. But that's not in the context of we have a family, there are so many great strengths to our relationship. And so I almost think that there's sort of this new almost shame and staying that people feel, because there's almost an expectation, how could you possibly be with somebody who cheated on you? And so I, again, I think it takes a lot of courage to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to just be defined by this infidelity because we know there's so much worth here worth fighting for. Because I really think that, and I hear this from clients all the time, family members will be like, you know, we can't be around both of you, like even for holidays. Like it's, it's amazing sense of pressure. I generally think it comes from a good place. Like, you know, this idea of once a cheater, always a cheater, like how could you possibly um, create a healthy relationship after that? But the reality is you can. It's very brave, by the way, to to try to work on something after that happens. I mean, I, I, I personally, I have a lot of um, admiration for a couple that decides that, you know what? I mean, listen, sometimes it's a wake up call and it's like, listen, this isn't working between us. Sometimes it's, you know, it's, it is a matter of like learning to communicate and work through this. And for those couples that have done that, I think that's really, really difficult. And I think it's admirable, in my opinion. I 100% agree with you. And I think that it's harder. It's harder to stay to work on the relationship than to 
just start over. But, you know, we sort of have an expression, wherever you go, there you are, in that we often have blind spots to how we might be co-creating our own nightmare in our relationships. And so, again, when you do the work in a relationship, you get to see how, I mean, and this is part of, you know, a fair recovery is like beyond first the crisis and the grief stages and, you know, the rebuilding trust is sort of the insight phase and understanding, like, it's not in any way to blame a partner, but it's to realize generally it didn't happen out of nowhere. More often than not, right? Right? There was disconnection, conflict, everything sort of gets co-created in my mind in a relationship. And so I think that that often takes time, again, after the sort of the crisis and that initial work to get to a place of what was the, the meaning of the affair and having some insight into sort of what were both partners' roles in that, not that it in any way makes the behavior, you know, acceptable. How do you, how do you speak to somebody who just is having a hard time trusting that person again. How do you how do you live with that person again and somehow not think that every time they're going somewhere or doing something or traveling that something might happen again? It really is a process of rebuilding trust and a few things around that. One is what happens often is like I hear things like I can't trust you like globally. Like it feels like I can't globally trust you. I'm like but you can probably trust them to pay the bills, to pick the kids up from school, right? Like, I think first is to help them realize it's in this one area, right, that you're struggling, because I think it can generalize and people can feel it's kind of global. So I think that's sort of the first thing. And the second thing is part of rebuilding trust is often having difficult conversations. Like, so it's not uncommon, say a relationship ended, it's like, if that person reaches out to you or contacts you, I would want to know, right? And in this case, say the husband didn't disclose and then the wife finds out. The rebuilding the trust is for him to be able to do the hard thing and say, hey, you know, so-and-so texted me. I just want to let you know, because it's sort of this idea of people are imagining what my partner doesn't know doesn't hurt them. <laughs> and then they find out and it's, of course, worse, right? So it really is the ability to say, like, it's not easy for me to talk about this with you or that I had this thought or that this came up for me today. But in me knowing you're sharing something that's hard and that vulnerability of that, that's part of what helps me to trust. And it takes time. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm so happy you just said that because that's something that you don't really think about. There are many other ways that we do trust our partner. And um, I think I, I love that you said that. So so thank you for that. So that's a really important thing to remember. Affairs is something that it, almost like an addiction in some ways, almost sort of ubiquitously affects us all. Like if you really asked people, you know, whether it was a friend, a parent, a child, like all of us have probably been exposed to or impacted by affairs in in different ways. So I think part of it is the more just like having conversations around sex, like let's take the stigma and the shame out of it. And let's just hold that sort of space and lens of curiosity of like, okay, what, what just happened? Because I do think every individual and every relationship is different. And like you said, sometimes it's like, it's burning the bridge. Like the affair is the way of ending it because they didn't know how else to do it, right? Or they wanted their partner to do it. And so, again, I think the meaning of affairs can be many different things. But I think for us to to not hold immediate judgment and to really want to understand the complexity and the context of how and why an affair happened is a thing that I hope people listening really take away from this. Because I think culturally, we get often in a very black and white, all or nothing, victim, perpetrator, you know, we sort of see it sort of polarized in that way. And I just think it's really important that we recognize it's so much more nuanced and complex and contextual than that. 
Right. I also think it's it's important to mention that because somebody has an affair, it doesn't make them a bad person. I think there are instances. I know of a story of a, a person that I knew once whose husband had hundreds of affairs with prostitutes and came unprotected and came home, brought it to his wife. I don't think that's really a nice thing to do. But I do think um, actively in all of our lives, judging somebody based on that and and coining them as a bad person, it's not okay, in my opinion. I think that we need to give people a little bit of a benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. I mean, again, I think an affair is almost like the scarlet letter, right? And that I think it's important that we don't feel like we have to wear a scarlet letter around shame or guilt in perpetuity, right? That it's really about learning from life and our experiences, but that we're all human. And I think it's important that we don't necessarily cast stones, but also that we have some self-compassion and that we don't feel that we're globally defined by choices that we may have made in the past. Because the most important thing is, if you think about it, every moment's independent event. It's like, what am I committed to today? How am I going to show up? There's a lot of question, like, are we wired for monogamy and all of that? And it's just like, if you think about it, monogamy is a commitment and a choice. It's something that we make every day. It doesn't equal that we don't notice other people. You don't get married and lose your eyesight, right? It's not like you don't notice that other people are attractive still, or that somebody's flirting with you and is it attention that doesn't feel good, just like rejection and abandonment, right? We're hardwired that that feels bad people paying attention to you and flirting you, well, guess what? (laughs) That feels good. So I think it's important that we just recognize that, again, we're not defined and it shouldn't, we shouldn't globally feel like there's a mark against us, whether our partner had an affair or whether we've had an affair. Right. And this is why I wanted to do this episode, because I think that we really need to understand that. I think it's important for us to stop shaming people all the time and try to understand the underlying reasons behind it. I also think that I'm very open in front of my kids when I see a man that's attractive and I'll say, oh, he's hot. And my kids will be like, mommy, you said that in front of daddy. I was like, guys, I'm a woman. Like, I still think men are attractive. That doesn't mean that I'm going after them. And I love when your dad sees a woman that's attractive. I mean, he doesn't go out of his way to bend his head backwards. But if he thinks a woman's attractive, I like that. He's a man and he's still alive and he can think women are attractive. I think that that's feeling secure in yourself. Absolutely. To be able to to feel that. I would never get angry at him for saying, oh, that woman's beautiful or wow, she's hot. Like, oh, whatever. It doesn't affect me. Well, and I think, again, it, it shows also the security and the trust in the relationship. Because as I said, it's like, we're human beings. We don't like lose our eyesight. Of course, we're going to notice people that are attractive. It's just that we don't act upon it. And that you can share that with your partner just in my mind speaks to the level of trust and the the clarity and the communication. Yeah, absolutely. Can you go a little bit more into consensual non-monogamy if, say, one partner is open to it or say a couple is, is open to it and maybe one person has other sexual desires in the relationship and the other partner doesn't? How does that work? Well, I think it's important to recognize that in a consensually non-monogamous relationship, the explicit permission is there that you are going to be having or open to having sexual experiences with another partner. And when, what I can say there, though, is, you know, we talk about desire discrepancies and mixed match levels of desire, which is, I think, 
common in all couples, but you know, this might be a sexless relationship or it might be where if I had money for every time I heard, which is nails to the chalkboard, mind you, women say, if I never had sex another day in my life, I'd be okay with that. Right? So like, as a whoa. sex therapist, you don't want to hear that. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, <laughs> then you've really not known pleasure. But anyway, if I get that part of my head out of it, for somebody who is say married to somebody who really has very little or no sexual interest, and yet is mindfully aware of the pain and distress and frustration, right, that that causes their partner. Sometimes part of a consensual non-monogamy is that, hey, I love you in our marriage and I don't want to lose you because you're feeling sexually frustrated and satisfied. So I'm okay with your being um, and having other sexual relationships. But that doesn't, I guess the piece here is it's not always a two-way street, right? That sometimes one person's fine that their partner's having sex with someone else, but that doesn't equal that they want to explore those same options. And I think what we talked about before, though, is it's also not uncommon. Someone wants to bring up the topic with their partner about opening up their relationship to um, have different sexual experiences. And the idea is like, I would love this for me, right? But the double standard, I'm not okay that happening for you. So that I think is the difference when it's consensually non-monogamous, you both understand what it is and what the arrangement is. Dan Savage talks about, again, a monogamish. For some couples, it's sort of like we're generally monogamous. But like, say, I have this one couple where when he travels out of the U.S., he can have sex with a sex worker. She's okay with that. But she just doesn't want it around home or around the kids. So again, it's really up to every couple to define it. And it's not always an equal, not equal on both sides because they don't want or need it to be. That's interesting. I think that that's something that I definitely have not had conversations with my friends about is even... anyone having that as an option. But listen, you know, it makes sense. And I think having that open dialogue is important. And if it's something that works for a couple, right. Megan, this was this was wonderful. And I hope eye-opening to some people. Um, of course, as usual, we could talk a lot more on the entire subject. Uh, where, where can you be found? Um, on Instagram, I can be found at, at Dr. D r dot megan m e g a n dot fleming f l e m i n g, or uh, you can go to my website greatlifegreatsex.com. and if you go to my website, you could actually also sign up for my seven amazingly helpful tips to get your relationship back on track. So um, those are two ways to connect with me, and hopefully for me to give people more information and adding value. Yeah, and tell me again, what what other things do you work on with couples as a, a sex therapist? Sure, I mean so. We do a lot with in terms of like those mismatched levels of sexual desire, low desire, not having orgasms, difficulties with arousal, issues around, you know, affair recovery, you know, should I stay, should I go? And often like even people before getting married, like if our sex life doesn't get better than this, you know, do we want to take it to the next level? Also issues around getting pregnant and challenges with that. Pretty much any relationship challenge is something that as a couples and sex therapist is something that we work with on a daily basis. Great. And, you know, I think it's important to point out to my listeners that if you're not in New York, there there are Megans all over the place that can do this kind of work with you. Maybe not as good as Megan, but there are um, therapists that do this work. And it's important for you to do this work. It's it's not always comfortable. But as I say, you know, we are women in our late 30s and 40s, and it's time to get uncomfortable and start doing this work now so that we can live the rest of our life 
in a positive way. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important to recognize it's growth work. Like growth is always in the discomfort. And to your point, so if somebody's looking for a sex therapist, again, across, you know, in America and even globally, it's ASECT, which is the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. So it's AASECT.org. And by state or country, they list who has the certification and qualifications. So you always know you're going to be in good hands. Oh, that's great. Thank you for that resource. Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show. And um, I, I, I just appreciate your time and your honesty. And hopefully we, we will speak again about some other topics. Sounds awesome. It was great being here with you today. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to give yourself permission and know that you are not alone. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reviews are always appreciated. And you can reach me by email at it's not a crisis at Gmail, Instagram, it's not a crisis podcast, and please join our Facebook group as well. Until next time, just remember, it's not a crisis.